This is In the Arena, the Colorado Concern podcast that explores the intersection of business and politics. I'm your host, Mike Kopp. Well, I'm so pleased to be joined today by two attorneys from the Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, Shrek law firm. One is Adam Egrin. Adam is a partner. He's a member of the executive committee, and he's a member of the Colorado Concern Board of Directors. The other is Chris Murray. Chris specializes in elections-related law. He is a partner at the firm. We have uh, retained the counsel at Colorado Concern of the Brownstein Law Firm because we're taking a very unusual step here at Colorado Concern, and we are suing the governor of the state of Colorado and the secretary of state. Uh, We believe the governor's recent actions and his executive order have overstepped his uh, stated authority in the Constitution, and he's uh, essentially taken an unconstitutional act. So that's what we're going to tease out here in this podcast, and I'd like to just go back to the top and say a welcome to Adam Agron. So Adam, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, thank you. And Chris Murray, thank you for joining us, too. That's a pleasure to be with you, Mike. Yeah, thank you. Gentlemen, we've had a, quite a frenzied several days now. Uh, about a week ago, uh, we were having a flurry of phone calls as we discussed the forthcoming executive order from the governor of the state of Colorado. And while we were unsure of the final form, uh, we knew enough uh, about the direction that the governor intended to go that uh, you guys could begin to do a little bit of research. And sure enough, when the order did drop, and it was late Friday night last week when it did drop, we zeroed in on the one. And the one is has to do with ballot issues. And at Colorado Concern, we are a business organization, but we have a very keen interest in the reliability, the trustworthiness, uh, the stability of our constitution in the state of Colorado is really evidenced in several years of work that we've done on related matters, such as raise the bar back in 2016, which made the constitution more difficult to amend, as well as uh, we were engaged in the open primaries issue to make the primaries accessible to um, unaffiliated voters and Y and Z, which really gives us a, a new set of rules for drawing legislative and congressional maps. Those are not business issues, we all know, but they are issues related to the overall operating system of the state, the system that functions within. So, yes, we're very interested. So that's, that's a little bit of the, the backdrop of our work. And I'd like to start with Adam, and if, if you could just give a little bit of a, a sense for what's important in the case, and maybe a little bit about the formation of the team that we've employed at the law firm. Sure. Happy to do that, and Chris can correct me if I'm wrong along the way. Uh, what's important in the case from the perspective of Colorado Concern and, and businesses across Colorado uh, is this concept of uh, avoiding fraud in our in our ballot initiative process? The Constitution was written very clearly, in our view, around how signatures are gathered and verified, and they require a wet signature and an in-person verification of identity. And the governor's executive order uh, effectively eliminates that requirement, despite the language in the in the Constitution, which, in our view, among other things, can lead to fraud and abuse in our election process. Uh, And while that on its face may not sound like a business issue, 
uh, the consequences of that, uh, of the governor's decision to effectively legislate through executive order and by using his emergency powers, in our view, can result in issues coming to the fore and ending up on the ballot that are not in the, in the interests of business. In a moment when we're trying to recover from a pandemic, global uh, recession, and potentially a depression, the last thing that we need are are more headwinds uh, for business. And those headwinds could come in the form of uh, improper uh, issues ending up on the ballot that uh, are not in the best interests of business. And Colorado Concern and, and other organizations across the state are looking at this two or three or four steps ahead. And understanding that if we if we take away these really important protections that the people of Colorado put in our constitution, uh, the likely result is a business climate and economic climate in Colorado that is not conducive not only to a to a healthy economy but to a recovery. Uh, and that's why we've taken the action that we've taken. Chris and and his team, including Sarah Mercer, another partner in the firm, uh, have significant experience with political law. Uh, with public issues, uh, public law issues like these. Uh, They've experienced appearing before the Colorado Supreme Court. They understand our political process, our constitution intimately. uh, And as as a result, I think are are very well situated uh, to help uh, navigate uh, this fight. Well, they are doing a great job. And I'm so proud to have such a a strong uh, and robust bipartisan team coming from the Brownstein firm. This is a good place to pull you in, Chris. We've had a lot of discussions this week uh, with our team and and you and I doing several media interviews as well. And and the issue of, you know, what is it that Colorado Concern is really looking at has come up uh, with with some regularity on these media calls that we've done. And uh, I, I recall earlier in the week, we were both saying that, look, these this is really a saw that can cut both ways there with an organization like ours as diverse as it is there are members that would that would like things that they would like they would like to see things on the ballot that are making their way in that direction now and there are some things they would would not want to see on the ballot so it really has to do with just the uh, maintaining the integrity of the constitution itself and i'm looking at the complaint now and i wonder if you would pick up at the article five argument that you make the heart of the complaint really is right out of the uh, constitution itself and that reason you're not even going to be relying heavily on a lot of external evidence is my understanding as we go to the court yeah well that's uh, that's exactly right mike and thanks again for uh, having me join you um you're absolutely correct that um, the heart of the argument is an argument that, look, I mean, uh, even if the governor, you know, leaving aside sort of our first argument, right, which is that the Colorado's Disaster Emergency Act doesn't let the governor do suspend a law relating to the actions of private citizens uh, gathering petitions, but that even if he can uh, suspend that for his emergency powers, you know, he, he can't suspend core requirements of the petition circulating process that are in Article 5 um, of our Constitution. And the specific provision that we're talking about is Article 5, Section 1, Subsection 6, 
which has specific requirements in it about what petitions are supposed to look like. Uh, this part of our Constitution has been there since 1910, and the, the important language is that petitions shall be signed by registered electors in their own proper persons only, which means in person, right, to which shall be attached the residence address of such person and the date that they signed it. So those are specific requirements. Um, it goes on to say that you have to attach an affidavit of some registered elector that each signature is the signature of the person whose name it purports to be. Finally, if you follow all of that, Article 5 goes on to say that, and, and this is really, really important, that any petition verified in that manner that the Constitution lays out, quote, shall be prima facie evidence that the signatures thereon are genuine and true, and that the persons signing the same are registered electors. That's in the Constitution. And, you know, that presumption of validity based on that in-person circulating, that in-person signing, that the Constitution gives to initiative petitions is actually core to Colorado's entire process for verifying initiative petitions. That's why when the Secretary of State gets a petition submitted, and she's only got 30 days to review it, by the way, under the Constitution, otherwise it's presumed valid, um, that's why she only looks at a subset of 5% of signatures. And so long as if you extrapolate the rate of validity from that subset out over the whole petition, it would be enough, it's gonna qualify for the ballot. The reason for that is the constitution makes us presume that initiative petitions are valid as long as they are circulated in the way the constitution requires. So the core of our argument is those constitutional requirements, even if the governor is trying to validly use his Disaster Emergency Act powers, he can't by himself get rid of a constitutional requirement that only the people of Colorado can do that, even in an emergency. Chris, one of the arguments that we've heard uh, put to us this week uh, from somebody in the media that was just trying to get their arms around this is they said, look, why not just allow anybody to get a petition uh, and, and do their own petition drive. Aren't you, aren't you disallowing something that is so, you know, so pragmatic and, and could still have those levels of verification? Why not, why not back the governor doing this so people can go ahead and engage in that activity? And I, I found your response uh, to that worth a retelling here. Oh, sure. I mean, so, and I, I, I recall that, uh, I recall that conversation with a member of the media. And yeah, I, I think specifically what they, what they asked about was, well, why shouldn't somebody be able to circulate a petition to their family um, or to their roommates or to their neighbors, right? Um, why shouldn't they be able to do that? And doesn't the governor's executive order just let them do that? And the fact is, is that the current law, the law that the governor just suspended, allows people to do that. Um, only professional petition circulators that are paid to circulate signatures have to register with the Secretary of State, right, and uh, have to meet some licensing requirements. People who do it on a volunteer basis don't have to do any of that, and the law already allows for it. So what the governor's executive order is doing is not allowing volunteers to collect petition signatures. They've always been able to do that. In, fa in fact, they have a constitutional right to be able to do it. What the governor's executive order is doing is saying, actually, we don't want 
circulators to be part of the process. We want you to just be able to email a signature in with your address or something um, and say, hey, I want my name on that petition, uh, which sounds great until you start thinking about what the role of the circulator is, which is to make sure that that signature that is being sent in is one that you actually signed, that you actually wanted there, and that you understood what the meaning of that signature on that petition was before you signed it. So volunteers circulating petitions is something we've always been able to do, and we can still do it under current law. Your firm has a lot of experience dealing with these types of issues, uh, ballot access issues, petition circulation issues, candidate issues, and so forth. So in some ways, you've, you've sort of seen it all. I'll play devil's advocate against my own case here for a moment, and I'll just I'll put it on the table for, for the both of you to react to. You know, what do you say to the argument where people say, look, you're, you're basically doing a lot of arcane sort of hand-wringing here. In, in practical terms, just normal people are, are wanting to in, engage the ballot process, and you're making it unreasonably difficult for them to do that. In other words, you're, you're overreacting here. What's your reaction to that? I guess I guess I'll take the first stab at it, uh, Mike, and I'm sure Adam will want to uh, add on to what I say. But I'll just say, look, I mean, the idea, you know, you're overreacting. I mean, that's not how constitutions work, right? The reason that we have constitutions is because they actually, they, you know, the, you, you you talked about like, oh, well, ordinary people want to be able to interact with petitions. Constitutions are for ordinary people. Constitutions make sure that the law doesn't change all the time and or any time that a governor or even a legislator gets a bright idea in their head. Constitutions make sure that the things that are really important to all of us as ordinary people can't be changed unless we as ordinary people get a say in it. And for better or for worse, we have decided to put these requirements and this process for gathering signatures into our constitution. It can be changed, but if we let the governor change this because it's convenient or it's helpful or it's a good idea or, you know, even, boy, it's a real bad emergency, then what you're doing is setting a precedent that, hey, maybe there's something else the governor could change in the constitution if some people think it's arcane or not worthwhile or you know, not a good idea anymore. And that's not how it works. And, and candidly, I mean, I think that's why Colorado Concern supported the raise the bar effort and why, why that was adopted uh, by the state's electors is that people get that. They don't want constitutions to be easy to change because history teaches us that if you make ill-considered changes to those things, they can haunt you for a long time. Yeah, I think that's right. I think to elaborate, the consequences of reopening the constitutional language, interpreting it uh, differently than it was intended to be read and understood and complied with are grave. Our job as lawyers and the judge's job in this case is going to be to interpret the constitutional language. If it's clear, then we all need to comply with it. That's why it's the constitution. It's the most important public law in our state and the U.S. Constitution plays the same role at the federal level. It is, um, it is uh, not to be messed with, to put it bluntly. Uh, and once we start doing so, I think the consequences are significant. 
Uh, and I would add a, a, t a point that Chris touched on earlier, which is th the way the governor is accessing this position and in, in our view, uh, essentially legislating, which is not his job, uh, he's not the legislature, uh, is through this emergency power. The emergency power is important and we all acknowledge that we're in an emergency and things change and you need to adapt and you need to allow, or in this case, the election process to proceed. But the election process is proceeding, right? People are going out. The one place that they're going most frequently is the grocery store. That's one of the places where signatures are most effectively and most commonly gathered. Uh, the irony of it is that at the same time as he's using his executive power and his emergency power to mandate that signatures can be gathered in a different way because people can't go out He's also opening up our economy and he's opening up businesses and opening up public places, which is only uh, going to result in a facilitating signature gathering. So we're struck by that dichotomy. We're struck by that irony here. Uh, and I think it's an important part of the argument before the court and uh, in interpreting the constitution. You have to take into account the circumstances that we're operating under and, and the governor's led the way by using his emergency powers to do so which he's allowed to do, but you can't disregard the fact that the facts are that people are, are in a position now more than they were a month ago to go out, go, go to places where signatures can be gathered. And the inequities that result from, uh, for example, electronic signature gathering has, haven't been considered. That's, they're not in our constitution for that reason, obviously in part because the internet didn't exist when our constitution was written in 1910, uh, but because there was a lot of thought around how signatures should be gathered and it is our job uh, to make sure that we protect that um, to Chris's point because the consequences of not doing so are significant. So the next stop is uh, Denver District Court. That'll be on May 22nd. It'll be in the morning. It'll be, I think, a WebEx conference. I don't know if you've uh, appeared in court, Chris, in this or Adam in this uh, new era where we're not appearing in person and Feel free to comment if that makes any sort of stylistic, subjective type of difference. But you'll go uh, argue our case on the 22nd, which is Friday. Any sense of what you expect that you'd like to share? Well, I, I actually have appeared um, on a WebEx uh, in another emergency matter actually related to elections uh, several weeks ago uh, before the Denver District Court. And you know, it's um, it's a strange system for a you know for a trial lawyer. Um, you like to be in the courtroom. There's a different energy associated with you know when everybody's kind of there, and, and and when you're all physically together. Um, but it's you know under the circumstances, it's a pretty good system. We don't, as you noted, I think at the top of the podcast, we don't anticipate presenting evidence or needing to present evidence because our arguments are purely legal. So the the real big downside of WebEx, which is it makes evidence incredibly difficult to present and it you know cross examining or examining witnesses is very difficult over it. Um, that downside uh, shouldn't be present for us. Um, I'm sure there'll probably be some awkward moments and some strange pauses and hopefully the internet works well. But uh, I, I think that WebEx should be perfectly fine to do what we need to get done on Friday and uh, give Judge McGahey uh, our best argument. Well, that's great. Obviously, we wish you uh, every success uh, as you represent us and, and our joint plaintiff here, Dan Ritchie, in the courts. And 
we'll be sure to uh, reopen up another podcast here in the future so we can describe where this case is moving. Any final thoughts, uh, Adam? No, I mean, my prediction for Friday, I can say this because I won't be there, uh, is is victory for, for, uh, for us and for Chris and his team. Uh, they're, like I said at the outset, well-equipped to do this, got great experience, and I have, I have every confidence they're going to be successful. Uh, I would add that this team is a bipartisan team because this is a bipartisan issue, uh, and I think taking politics, frankly, out of this uh, debate is really important because this is an important issue for, uh, for both sides of the aisle. Yeah, thank you. Well, gentlemen, I, I appreciate both of you coming on and sharing your perspectives and thoughts about this important endeavor for not just Colorado Concern and, and Mr. Ritchie, but for the state of Colorado. Um, I think it's always the right thing to defend the Constitution. And Chris, I wrote your great line down, constitutions are for ordinary people. And it's, it's not an arcane document. That is, it is for the ordinary people and it protects our way of life. Well, thank you both. We'll continue to track as we move ahead. Thank you so much, Mike, and thanks for the opportunity to represent Colorado Concern. Thanks for listening to the In the Arena podcast with Colorado Concern. I hope you'll subscribe so you can stay informed on the intersection of business and politics in Colorado. 